The Guardian. Twenty twenty has been an interesting year, and that's putting it mildly. When January the first came around, myself and colleagues thought the biggest thing we'd have to cover was probably Brexit negotiations. And we did have to report on talks between the EU and UK, but what we didn't see coming down the pipeline was a global pandemic that was going to push Boris Johnson's government to its very limits. People obviously can make up their own minds. I think the Matt has said that people must make up their own minds, but I think the scientific evidence is well, I'll hand over to the to, to the experts, but, but our, judgment, our judgment is wash. Uh, washing your hands is the crucial thing. When news of this unknown virus in Wuhan, China, started to make its way to our bulletins, the Prime Minister told us not to worry. So much so that he was going to continue as normal, shaking everyone's hands as he went about his day. Just a few weeks later, he was ordering the public to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. He went on to contract Covid himself, as did I in fact, though mercifully I didn't end up in intensive care. And this was not only a public health emergency. It forced the Conservative government to manoeuvre its way through the most unprecedented of times, sometimes getting things very wrong along the way. It's hard to encapsulate everything that happens in a year, even in normal times. But in 2020, the task is all but impossible. So this week, I thought it would be better to get some colleagues together to chew it over. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian. And in this week's Politics Weekly, I'm joined by The Guardian's deputy political editor, Jessica Elgott, political correspondent, Peter Walker, and sketch writer, John Crace. Peter, I feel like we should start with you because you're, I think, the only one of us who is still regularly making it into Westminster for our various various different reasons. It, what's it like and how different is it from normal at the moment? It's quite different in the sense, I mean, you know, one of the curses of me being a politics journalist is I, I'm not very good at facial recognition. So I'm not very good at recognising uh, MPs as they walk past. And now they're wearing masks, you know, you can't, I can't recognise uh, anyone. It's it's a weird mix because the press corridor itself is quite quiet. Some newspapers have got quite a few people in, but some rooms are completely empty. And MPs are there, but they obviously can't linger. You know, a big part of normal Westminster life is people hanging around, chatting, having coffees. And there's a bit of that. But it has this kind of, I don't know, kind of railway station ambience of everyone just passing through. So it's not nearly as much fun. And Jess, you had this bizarre thing, didn't you, of going off on maternity leave, really in a completely different world, pre-general election last year and certainly pre-COVID, and and then coming back to this sort of strange pandemic-ridden Westminster. Yeah, I remember that the, the week that I left for maternity leave was the week that Boris Johnson threw all of those Tory MPs out of the party for um, some kind of Brexit vote, the significance of which I cannot even remember. Um, and... <laughs> And that seemed like, you know, a seismic moment, real historic stuff. And, you know, who even remembers who they were? Could you, you know, I can can probably name three or four of them. It's just, uh, it it, it just feels like a different world. And I, you know, remember watching the general election at home with a tiny baby thinking, wow, it's going to be quite boring when I get back to work, uh, because there's this, you know, stable majority government. Brexit is, is sorted out. Um, there's going to be, you know, no nothing anyone can do to stop Boris Johnson doing what he wants. And then, of course, you know, then I come back and, and it's the middle of an unprecedented pandemic. And of course, not only is has there been the fallout from that and all the various 
terrible events that's gone on, you know, from the shortage of PPE to track and trace to the A-levels scandal. But also, you know, there is rebellion. There's, there's, there, we're sort of back in uh, a little bit of a deja vu with a rebellious Tory party. So it's been an odd time to come back. John, Boris Johnson did actually start the year by achieving something, didn't he? He did actually get Brexit done. He did take us out of the EU on the 31st of, of January. Yes, though it was a strange thing. I mean, there was a campaign to bung a bob for a big Ben bong or something like that. I'd forgotten that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was meant to be this big momentous occasion. And there was this sort of light show outside number 10 that no one could see. And and Boris then just sort of put out a sort of three-minute Facebook conversation with the nation saying this was a great day. This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama. And the whole thing felt completely sort of underwhelming as far as I was concerned. <laughs> and it was a, a sort of a bit the end of the beginning of the end of Nigel Farage in a way, wasn't it? Or the relevance of him. Peter, you're you're a keen Farage watcher. He's had to sort of reinvent himself, hasn't he? Because the purpose for which his political life existed has now been achieved. Well, we've kind of, we're now onto kind of Nigel Farage 3.0 because we had the Brexit version. And then, I mean, he's always in fallow periods in British politics attached himself to US politics. And obviously he became a big camp follower of Trump. And he spent a lot of time before the US presidential uh, election over there trying to drum up support for Trump and you know, being his best mate and stuff like that. But obviously that's now not going to work anymore. And he's trying to reinvent himself as this kind of, I don't know, all-purpose culture warrior. So he's done a lot of these strange films where he stands on the Channel Coasts and complains about the migrants and asylum seekers coming over in, in boats. He's decided to revamp the Brexit party and make it a kind of, well, one of the ideas was to oppose lockdown measures but now we've got a vaccine that might kind of not last very long and weirdly he's now started to oppose cycling lanes which even for Nigel Farage seems a bit niche <laughs> not for you Peter I mean this is two of my great interests of coming <laughs> but he's now promised that at the English local elections in May um, that his party I think they're now called the reform party will stand candidates against any councillors who promise to build bike lanes which seems you know i like cyclones probably more than most but that seems like a slightly odd thing to do it sounds like he's turning into a sort of pound shop jordan peterson with with some help from toby young and james dellingpole he is very much like that and it's basically anything kind of culture war telegraph friendly that, that that kind of moves he will um he will go for i mean he's not really as far as i know talked about cycling before there was a famous ukip manifesto from, I can't remember, it might have been 2005, where amongst their transport policies was that um, cyclists would have to get up, get off their bikes and walk it round uh, roundabouts. But I think that was one of the brief periods when Farage wasn't actually the leader, so you can't be blamed for that. <laughs> that, is, that is very niche. And Jess, we've seen the Tory rebels reinvent themselves as well, haven't we? Or rather, th- those who were once rebels are, are, are inside and others are outside. And, the, you know, the party sort of turned itself upside down. But but nevertheless, some of the same characters, the Steve Bakers and so on, are, are still a thorn in the side of the Tory leadership, which is not something we would have expected, is it? I remember thinking here comes trouble when uh, when Steve Baker decided he didn't want to be a minister in Boris Johnson's government. And, and I think he, he very much enjoys 
the role of being the thorn in the side of whoever's in power, um, even though he was a supporter of Boris Johnson's leadership campaign. I mean, it is amazing to see the kind of same thing happening again with with the anti lockdown crew um, who have been, you know, were a, a quite a disparate bunch, I think, probably uh, people you wouldn't necessarily have expected uh, to be in the same room. There's the there's Hugh Merriman, who was um, Philip Hammond's sort of junior minister in the Treasury and, and even got on stage at one st- uh, point and back to people's vote. Um, and and now he's he's sort of part of the of the coterie of of, of anti-lockdown um, rebels who who believe that you know there's there's no evidence behind some of the measures the government's doing, and it's the same kind of thing playing out again. It's very familiar to Westminster journalists of like a WhatsApp group run by and um, someone working for a kind of a slightly shadowy organisation. This time they're called the CRG rather than the the ERG, um, and it's like wow. Um, it's it's amazing how there's this kind of uh, suddenly this very organised whipping operation. Obviously, it's different, isn't it? Because it, it, there's there's a much bigger majority, and also because Labour are generally supporting the Prime Minister on COVID stuff. But I mean, they definitely now have the numbers to defeat Boris Johnson. I just can't believe we're in that that situation. It's extraordinary. It does seem extraordinary. And, and John, particularly because it's a government that likes to paint itself as very much not being the establishment, doesn't it? Particularly, you know, earlier in the year when we had Dominic Cummings in that absolutely key role. And, you know, he started off the year, didn't he, writing that blog talking about the kinds of crazy guys he wanted to hire. He wanted misfits. He wanted weirdo geniuses to come into Number 10 and work with him. This is a government that liked to think of itself as being sort of outside the establishment shaking things up, wasn't it? His, his his big shtick was that I am the great super forecaster and I would be willing to bet that by uh, the beginning of the year, Dominic Cummings wouldn't have su- wouldn't have imagined that he'd be out of number 10 already. And I was kind of perhaps taken a little bit by it, by this massive election win that they were this, you know, they are the kind of master strategist. They are particularly like the comms strategist. And we have had, I think you'll probably all agree, like, some of the worst comms in government over the last 12 months in terms of the number of U-turns and sort of terrible positions the government found itself painted into. Well, I I don't think we can sort of let the year go by without uh, the trip to Barnard Castle. Calls for the British Prime Minister's top adviser, Dominic Cummings, to resign continue to grow inside Boris Johnson's own party. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. We drove for roughly half an hour and ended up on the outskirts of Barnacastle Town. I I might just say I'm I'm finding I have to wear spectacles for the first time in in years because of, uh, I I think, because of the effects of this thing. So I'm I'm inclined to think there's some, uh, some, I think that that's very, very plausible that there's a, that that eyesight can be a problem associated with, uh, with coronavirus which uh, did more to sort of damage the government comms on uh, coronavirus than almost anything else. I mean... Why do you think that was, John? Why did it kind of encapsulate something about this government? Well, I think it's finally sort of seeped through that. It goes back to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, this was meant to be a people's government, an anti-establishment government. 
and the treatment of Dominic Cummings rather proved the opposite, that there was one rule for those who were on the inside and another for those on the outside, because literally the, all members of the cabinet, I can remember even sort of Matt Hancock queuing up to say, dear old Dom has just done what any dad would do. I mean, go into work after his wife, you know, when he was supposed to be self-isolating, drive up to Durham for two weeks, and then go for an eyesight test in your car, bumping off a few pedestrians along the way. I mean... <laughs> It, it, is, it, was just, it was just bonkers. It was completely mad. But Peter, it kind of demonstrated how much Boris Johnson obviously felt that he needed Cummings, didn't it? It really, it was extraordinary, really, the lengths to which he went to keep him. I mean, in a pretty extraordinary political year, I think the most amazing moment was that incredibly long and tortuous Dominic Cummings press conference, where he basically, you know, number 10 thought the best thing to do would be to wheel out uh, Cummings, who's not even a kind of minister or an uh, MP, he should be a backroom person, to give this very long and strangely outdoor press conference. We had to explain what he was doing when he went up to Durham and Barnard Castle. And this was a point at which, you know, I was basically saying to anyone I was talking to about, he's got to go. You know, the normal political rules, you don't let an advisor dominate like this in such a negative way, particularly during this period of complete national emergency. And every single time I thought he had to go, he didn't. And this kind of showed that this was a government which is not following normal rules. This is a government where shame doesn't really matter, where even if someone has very, very obviously done something completely, utterly wrong and under normal political rules would go, then he just kind of completely breaks it out. But I think particularly with Cummings, I think it's, I think it's ended up kind of damaging their brand really quite badly. The way that this government has found itself in so many situations where it's had to U-turn because there was this sense, I think, from people right at the top of government that press pressure was something they should never give into, even when it came to points where it was clearly the right thing to do to U-turn. And there's so many examples of that, whether it's wearing masks in shops um, following Nicola Sturgeon's line on that, whether it's the Marcus Rashford campaign around school, free school meals, whether it's the A-level results, whether it was the two-week circuit breaker lockdown. I mean, there is just so many examples of where they have had to go back because that was the obvious thing to do. And the reason the press pressure was there is because the government was going down the wrong path. But they have made things worse for themselves because of that refusal to compromise until they had to. And then it's quite debilitating, I think, isn't it, if you're a member of the cabinet? I mean, it's extraordinary, really, the relationship between the cabinet and the prime minister at the moment. But, you know, if you're one of those cabinet ministers who gets sent out to say, you know, Dominic Cummings is a great guy, anyone would have done the same. Or, of course, we don't need to provide free school meals during the holidays. Everyone will be fine. Or, you know, of course, we don't need to wear masks in shops. You know, and, and then literally the next day you have, you have to kind of turn on a sixpence. That's quite difficult to stomach, I think, unless you're a particular kind of... Minister. John, what do you make of this this cabinet? Well, I think some of them have vaguely wised up because in the in the early days of the Downing Street press conferences, you could be guaranteed to get a sort of different cast of characters every day. We had a, a long period of Dominic Raab when Boris was in the intensive care. Matt Hancock has been an ever-present, but we would have Michael Gove there, Rishi Sunak, but strangely, no Pretty Patel. I think she was always considered to be a sort of liability. 
But I, I think a lot of the ministers have decided that it's not worth the flack to go out and do it. So poor old Matt Hancock has just been turned into a doormat, basically, where everybody just sort of comes into the cabinet room and rubs their shoes on him. And he has a particular style, Peter, doesn't he, of of sort of promising in a very upbeat way, you know, that, that he has the solution to the problem, whether it's, you know, 100,000 tests a day or or whether it's the app. Poor old Matt Hancock's app became, a, 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 well, quite hard not to laugh at at one point during the summer. We got there in the end, I suppose. I mean, Matt Hancock, it's been a very strange year for a lot of politicians, but particularly for him. I mean, health secretary is always obviously an incredibly important job. But when he took it, he would never, ever have imagined, you know, what was about to come. And I think with John's point, I think some of the ministers who will go out and defend obviously wrong things do it because I suspect they might think that this is the only cabinet or ministerial post they're ever going to get. Because there is a sense that there's some heavy hitters who Boris Johnson deliberately left on the back benches. And this is not, you know, the most talented ministerial team there could possibly be. So there's some who just have the principle of thinking, well, you know, I've got to defend this guy because as soon as he's gone, I'm back on the back benches. But, you know, John, you've very much chronicled this. He's become quite kind of passively aggressive. He very, very obviously believes he's doing the right thing and kind of defends it. But he seems to take it quite personally when people criticise things. The first peak. And so I think that the Honourable Gentleman, instead of attacking the NHS, should be backing the NHS and thanking them for the incredible hard work that the NHS are doing right now and will be doing over this winter. I mean, if John Ashworth, when his opposite number has a shadow health secretary, whenever John Ashworth raises even a vaguely reasonably critical point, he says, why aren't you supporting the government? Why aren't you supporting me? And you kind of think, well, it's just a reasonable question. Also because uh, he's the opposition. And it, it's it, literally it, it, his job. <laughs> I, it is literally his job. And I'm, I mean, I must say that I kind of feel I have been on this journey with Matt myself because <laughs> because in the beginning I I actually felt quite sorry for him because Matt and uh, Boris got ill at roughly the same time and all the attention was on uh, Boris how is he doing how is he doing and then oh my god he's in intensive care is he going to be okay is he again and literally no one was asking a single question about whether Matt Hancock was okay or not but when he came back and recovered from it he he did actually sound serious as though I you know I am going to do this reach this 200,000 tests a day mark but sort of since then, he's managed to miss almost every target. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart, and alongside my colleagues, I'm sifting through the many political headlines that caught our attention this year. Um, Jess, you mentioned John Ashworth there. I think he's probably one of the few people still in the same job on the Labour front bench from uh, when you went off on maternity leave. But what do you make of the new team in Labour? It wasn't the most uh, exciting leadership election ever, was it? And poor old Keir Starmer had to give his acceptance speech, you know, in front of his blinds in his living room or wherever he was. It's been quite hard, has it, for him to sort of stamp his mark on the party? 
I think it's so difficult to know how Keir Starmer's doing in the country because we've never seen him kind of give a live speech. We've never seen him in front of a crowd on TV. We've always seen him, as you described, kind of standing in front of a wall delivering a message to camera. We've never seen him out and about in the country, really. He's made occasional, very small kind of contained visits. And so all you really see about Keir Starmer is like the reaction on social media. And clearly there, there's, there's still a kind of forever war going on in the Labour Party in, in a more serious, on a more serious note about anti-Semitism, but also about the legacy of Corbynism and what was really to blame for that terrible defeat in 2019. Was it Keir Starmer's Brexit policy that alienated all those red wall voters? Or was it, you know, they just really didn't like Jeremy Corbyn? And people on both sides of the argument have obviously got a motivation to make uh, the other argument. And so I think it's got, it's going to be another year yet. And when we kind of get into slightly more normal political times, when we can really assess what Keir Starmer's doing. Um, John Ashworth is one of those shadow cabinet ministers who does stand out as someone who's had a really good year, um, clearly massively on top of his brief, always seems to get the right questions in when he's questioning Matt Hancock. And I think it was probably a really good decision of Keir to keep him in that job. The rest of the shadow cabinet, have they made much of an impression? I, I doubt very many people in the country could tell you who who pretty much any of them are. Um, so that's going to be something that, that you know, if, if, if Keir Starmer really wants to build a brand around his new team, that, that, that he's going to have to get those people out there a bit more in the new year or think about whether they need some of the sort of more famous faces up there. John, have you found the Labour front bench to be very sketchable? What's Starmer like to sketch? I'm sort of with Jess. I'm struggling still to get a kind of real handle on him. He's very able and he is, he clearly unsettles Boris Johnson in a way that Corbyn never did. Because I think that Johnson recognises him as a serious potential threat. The first thing I've noticed about Keir Starmer is that he can think on his feet better than Jeremy Corbyn. With Jeremy Corbyn, you always felt that he'd gone with his six question into PMQs, with his six questions mapped out. And whatever Boris said, it wouldn't make any difference because he would just plough on to his next question regardless. Where Keir, uh, in the beginning, he felt a bit kind of stilted. And I mean, everybody said he's forensic. And I think that's just because they remembered he'd been a QC. But there was something kind of legalistic and progressive about the way his questions sort of built up. But how much PMQs actually resonates outside Westminster is, I mean, no one ever really knows. And it feels a bit, Peter, like we, what we haven't seen him do, and and it's, there are understandable reasons we haven't seen him do it, because you can't do this kind of thing in a pandemic. But, you know, we haven't seen much sort of passion, have we? We haven't seen, and this is what Jeremy Corbyn did all the time. He went to rallies and he went to campaign events and he gave these sort of very passionate speeches and he, you know, kind of got the crowd going. It, we haven't seen much of that from Starmer, have we? I, I wonder whether he'll be able to sort of channel a bit of that in 2021. I mean, the interesting thing is, was that Starmer's style in a weird way this year, has kind of suited him quite well. And I've found it interesting watching at Prime Minister's questions that when, you know, because the chamber's been quite quiet, there's not been that many people there. And he has this kind of habit of Prime Minister's questions of just asking Johnson factual questions, which obviously Boris Johnson finds very difficult. Three months ago today, the Prime Minister said, test and trace can be a real game changer for us. He was backed up by the Health Secretary, who said, 
Finding where people who test positive are is the single most important thing that we can do to stop the spread of the virus. Yesterday, the Prime Minister said the complete opposite. And it is, you know, he can, he's proved he can do that really, really well. The challenge for him in 2021 is going to be when you can hold political rallies, when, you know, when any of this is like a proper Labour Party conference. Can he give the kind of rousing speech? His reputation as an orator is not that amazing. And, you know, and it could be that we're in very, very serious times that if we do have this kind of 2021 of continued national crises of the aftermath of Brexit and, you know, COVID and stuff, maybe people do want a kind of more sober leader. But it's going to be interesting. It's going to, it's going to be something he's going to have to do. But he's been quite lucky. He's had a bit of chance to build up to it. Mm. I, I, Peter, I should also ask you... Um... What have the Lib Dems been doing this year? Um, they've had a leadership contest, haven't they? It doesn't feel as if Ed Davies made that much of an impression on the public consciousness. And I promise this. I will be your voice. Well, it's been an incredibly difficult year for any opposition party, but particularly a small one, not least one that almost this time last year was still hoping for 50 or 60 seats and got nowhere near that. I was Talking to Daisy Cooper, who was one of their new uh, MPs who got voted in for the first time at the um, 2019 election. And she was saying how her election night was so weird that she just got off the stage where she'd been voted in, you know, gave her speech. And the first question she got from the TV journalist was, you know, are you feeling good? Yes, of course I am. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that Joe Swinson had lost a seat? And she hadn't been told that. Ah. So suddenly all the exaltation came crashing down. And they've been kind of consistent on about five six seven percent so they haven't disappeared but i mean they had this report into what went wrong at the 2019 uh, election which basically called it a uh, called it a car crash and blamed lots of things some to do with swinson some structural stuff and ed davy is basically using the relative quiet of the kind of chaos of covid to try and rebuild the party in a kind of structural way They've had some mini victories. Davy was the person who first got Boris Johnson um, in Parliament to agree to a public inquiry into COVID. Um, they've kind of beavered away on stuff like that. Uh, Davy's tried to rebrand them as a party of carers, which hasn't really resonated so far. But when there's an estimated nine million carers in Britain, could actually be quite a clever thing. Mm, interesting to see how it's a, it's a long way till the long time till the next general election. It's not like 2017 to 19 when we parties had to be on a sort of war footing all the time, is it? There is a bit of time for both Starmer and Davy to sort of build up their presence a bit in the in the you know before we see the next general election, whenever that is, 2023, 2024. Jess, who else would you pick out that you ha- that you know that has made an impact this year? So so Rishi Sunak, for example, was a sort of promising backbencher when you went up, went off on your on your maternity leave, uh, finds himself being the Chancellor. Uh, poor poor old um, uh, Sajid Javid got uh, chucked overboard in February. Sunak's had quite a good year, would you say? Yeah, the two people I was going to pick out, certainly from the Conservative side, would be Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. I mean, Rishi Sunak, you know, what he's he's like brand Rishi now. Um, and so much so that uh, Boris Johnson's decided, hang on a minute, I want a bit of that. And he, he's he's uh, he's nabbed Rishi Sunak's uh, advisor, Allegra Stratton, to be to be the face of the government, which is I'm sure, something I'm sure we'll be talking about those TV press briefings that are coming up. We'll be talking about those at the review of the year next year, whatever they look like. But yes, he's managed to make himself a kind Kind of popular face of the pandemic um, because he's the one doling out the cash. He's the one who's saving or at least trying to save businesses, paying your salary, you know, trying to keep the UK in this kind of holding position and hoping for a recovery sometime next year. 
I suspect that that image of Rishi Sunak cannot hold because over the course of the next four years, the Treasury is going to turn very swiftly from being the goody into being the baddie and being the one that says we have got to start paying for all of this unprecedented spending that there's been during during this pandemic. And that will mean things like tax rises. And, you know, they promise it won't mean public spending cuts. It's very hard to see how it won't mean spending cuts, um, especially as we've already seen um, a public sector pay freeze, or at least the majority of public uh, sector um, having a pay freeze over, you know, the, the last spending reviews, with just, which has just gone. And yeah, uh, Jeremy Hunt, I feel, merits a mention because he's the kind of... Um, established himself you know as the chair of the health select committee and as the uh, someone who feels like is holding the government to account a bit particularly on on testing he's the one who i think probably really drove the narrative around mass testing and and although test and trace has been pretty much awful the testing part of it hasn't actually been that bad i mean apart from a real where a real terrible time where it all collapsed in september and no one could get a test most of the time people have managed you know to get to get testing um, reasonably well. It's the tracing part that's obviously just been, a, 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 you know, the outsourced tracing part that's been just a disaster. And people, you know, constantly rung um, the parents checking that their child is isolating and have you had contact with your five-year-old child recently? And that that's the thing that's been a real mess. And Jeremy Hunt's, I think, you know, his his obsession with the way that uh, Southeast Asian countries have dealt well with the pandemic and, and the lessons we could learn from it has probably been quite a good thing to have him on the benches, on the back benches, making those points. Hunt is actually quite an interesting one because I've been writing a piece about Lib Dems and someone reasonably senior in Lib Dems off the record was saying that, you know, they've got these big plans for 2021, but their, their big fear amongst a couple of them is that uh, Boris Johnson decides to step down and someone like Jeremy Hunt ends up taking over because then suddenly they'd have, you know, the Lib Dems have much less of a kind of play. You've had a lot of people who have done their jobs and fronted press conferences and stuff like that, but it's only really been governments who's got a look in. Pretty Patel has had an extraordinarily bad year. And, and I am sorry if I have upset people in any way whatsoever. That was completely unintentional. Well, I mean, you know, some Conservatives would argue that her immigration and asylum stuff has actually been quite positive for them. But she's been very, very much in the news. But it's it's been really, really rare to have someone who's proactively made a name for themselves. It's mainly just been events happening to people. I was going to say, the only person I could think of who's had an unmitigated good year is Marcus Rashford. Oh, who yes. Who single-handedly <laughs> changed it. <laughs> who has, you know, been, become this like absolute campaigning hero on free school meals um, and really sort of brought it to the, brought, you know, child poverty into public consciousness and not on just on free school meals, but also on, on literacy. So, and he's really, you know, um, this young footballer who, who, you know, the tabloids terrorised at, at various points, probably in a quite a racist way early on in his career, has just, you know, become this, this icon who's got the government on the run. It's, it's extraordinary to see it. Political strategists could really learn by the, from the way he's uh, uh, done it. It's been really amazing. Yeah, he certainly seems turned out to have been better at politics than Dominic Cummings. It's, it's, <laughs> it seems by the end of the year. Uh, John, John, have you? Were there any characters or moments that you enjoyed sketching? It's probably been quite hard, hasn't it? Sketching at moments when we were actually all quite frightened and the picture was all pretty grim. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that at times in the year that the, sort of the comedy has become so dark as to be invisible in the sketches and more kind of howl of rage. But I, I have had, uh, a, I mean, a couple of moments, standout moments. I mean, uh, Barnard Castle and Dominic Cummings, you know, obviously up there. But um, I love the fact that Chris Grayling, um, the man who has cost the country three billion quid, um, it, it, with his disasters, failed to win a rigged election. That was brilliant. For, went for, as sort of chair of the Joint International Security Committee. And Julian Lewis just stepped in and, so, and went up to the four opposition MPs and said, look, OK, I will do it for, I, I will publish the Russia report. I will and so they all voted for him instead. So Julian Lewis sort of just went rogue. And Chris Groening was completely wrong-footed. And, <laughs> I, and I love the fact that sort of there is, not, there is no winning position from which Chris Groening cannot fail. We should look forward to 2021, which, you know, I, I have some hopes that we'll all be at some point back together in Westminster again, sitting, you know, huddled side by side in room 15 gossiping, which we haven't had nearly enough opportunity to do this year. But Jess, are you convinced by Boris Johnson 2.0? Do you feel like, you know, Boris Dominic Cummings has gone, Lee Kane has gone. Are we going to see a sort of different approach from the Prime Minister Brexit off will sail? Will we, we see a different Boris Johnson? I think that that you know there was an illustration wasn't there in that that week that was supposed to be the great Boris reset you know as soon as Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings were out the door it was like you know this this week is going to be the new Boris and within 12 hours he was self-isolating having invited MPs into Downing Street who who probably shouldn't have have come in there and one of them having tested positive for coronavirus I think there's only so much you can do to mitigate Boris Johnson um, I think that there's, I, I think there's probably um, people in there now who who will try and who will probably be less likely to aggressively rub people up the wrong way who they're supposed to be working with. The the new chief of staff Dan Rosenfeld doesn't look like he wants to go to war with the civil service, the people who are supposed to be delivering on the government's priorities. So that might that might make a difference. I think one of the key things which we'll all be looking out for is whether this these new briefings that I mentioned a bit earlier, these TV briefings, help to improve government communications. I think probably, I don't have high hopes, having watched the White House uh, press briefings that are on camera, uh, I mean, admittedly, those of the, the most recent ones have been for a Trump administration that isn't very keen on transparency either, but... Um, you know they haven't they haven't you know greatly improved i wouldn't have thought uh government communications uh for white house correspondents even though they've been quite long running over there uh but i think in a way i'm looking forward for there to be a, a moment where people can't uh, people in in number 10 can't just completely ignore or or effectively mislead around key questions it's all going to be on camera and it's all going to be in public and i think Perhaps that will do something good to to get answers, and particularly as we start to scrutinise the conduct of the government over during this pandemic and before an inevitable inquiry, which which is you know coming down the tracks. Yeah, and it's actually it's interesting. Nicola Sturgeon doesn't have a spokesperson; does all those briefings herself, and and 
you know, she she's seen really to have had a good pandemic, isn't she? So have been pretty good at communicating and not doing what Boris Johnson often did, which was to sort of say, don't worry, everything will be all right by the summer, everything will be all right by Christmas, everything will be all right, you know, and then have to sort of row back from it. She, she's much more sort of blunt and a bit doer. And sometimes that's that's maybe a, a, a better approach. It'd be very interesting to see how, how Allegra Stratton takes that on. It, John, do you have hopes of, of a new Boris Johnson sort of emerging from the chrysalis in 2021? Well, professionally speaking, no. It would suit me very well if he carried on as badly <laughs> as, he, as he has been now. I mean, I also think that as long as some members of the cabinet are in post, it's going to be impossible. I mean, Gavin Williamson has to be one of the worst education secretaries of all time. I mean, he literally had one job back in March, which was when, when the schools were closed down, which was to work out the exams. And he failed to spot it. You know, um, it was extraordinary. Peter, that n- none of us are feeling very upbeat about 2021. Give, give us something to look forward to. Oh, your book's coming out. My book's coming out in January, yes. Um, plug, plug, plug. It's about how everyday physical activity disappeared from the modern world, etc., etc. But in terms of, I don't know, I mean, obviously the big thing to look forward to would be a mass rollout of vaccines, which are proved to be not just effective in stopping people from becoming ill with COVID, but also from passing it on. And if that happens, then, I don't know, I think even for a government, you could think, well, there's going to be a public that will have other things on their mind. They'll be seeing relatives, they'll be going out, they'll be kind of going to bars and stuff like that. This might take longer than we think. And one of Boris Johnson's failings amid COVID has been managing expectations. But if by the summer life is returning quite a lot more towards you know what you might call normal, that that, that will provide a lot of cover for other things. But otherwise, you know, this could be one of the years where again, a lot of things happen to the government where they have to just make choices. I mean, at some point, there's going to be have to be some very, very difficult decisions about how we pay for all the COVID stuff, whether that's tax increases or spending cuts or anything like that. Brexit could end up being one of those things where the UK will feel like it's just buffeted in an external storm. There could be lots of things like border chaos, immigration chaos, when people start going away, you know, to to, to Europe, all these strange anomalies could could crop up. So, it could be a year of highs, but also some kind of very unexpected lows. I've been ever since I started this job in 2016, I've been waiting for politics as usual. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I really know what is, but what that is. But I don't think it's going to arrive anytime soon in 2021. But I, I do, I'm at least holding out hope that we can all be uh, re- reunited. We're certainly all going to be busy. Um, thanks ever so much, guys. Jessica Elgott, Peter Walker and John Crace. Thanks for joining me today. Hope it wasn't too painful to relive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, no one knows what 2021 has in store, but at least the start of the mass vaccination programme has given us a glimmer of hope to focus on in this festive season like no other. So for now, I'm simply going to wish you a very happy Christmas. I hope the holidays, whatever you end up doing, bring you some cheer, some relaxation and lots of chocolate. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.